0: So Retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History?
1: Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance.
0: On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine.
1: On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers.
0: And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every Hello, man, fans. Ollie Man here with the Modern Man. Hi to Andrew, who says since the podcast is getting quite heavy on ambassadors, I don't know what you mean, Andrew. We've got like fifty cities in the UK that are yet to have a ambassador, and there's the rest of the world as well. Uh, Maybe it's time, he says, to consider implementing a new honorific title. Since you enjoy your tenuous puns, Ollie, may I suggest foxhole general or oligarch? Ugh. You can suggest them, Andrew, but uh, that doesn't mean that they're going to pass. In in fact, I wonder how that idea would test in a focus group. Uh, Our middle interview this week is with a really fascinating bloke who's master of the dark arts of focus grouping, or well, maybe it's not so dark, maybe it's just asking the public what they think about stuff, we talk about all of that uh, anyway, I think you'll really enjoy it if you're at all interested into how the world of modern politics works uh, or doesn't, frankly uh, before we get going though, big thanks again to arlowolf.com for sponsoring this episode uh, not only do they offer a delightful range of good value, beautiful specs as we've discussed in previous episodes uh, they also actually have a tie-in with a charity called Sight to Say the if you've heard of them but they do amazing work towards a long-term goal of curing avoidable blindness all over the world Um, so they go and educate healthcare professionals in developing countries and they form links with hospitals in high-risk areas and for every frame that Arlo Wolf sells uh, here in the UK they donate a frame to site to save to give to someone who doesn't have access to the same standard of eye care that we do Um, so that's another great reason to check out ArloWolf.com to buy your next pair of glasses for only 65 quid and you get 10% off your final purchase when you use our offer code man that's m-a-n-n uh, right on this week's show you will learn what spaddalare is you will learn which decision cost gordon brown his premiership and you'll learn what to do when you're the only gay in the village let's go on this week's modern man Try and dress one notch more formal than however you expect the participants to come. U-shaped rooms, open questions and gender dynamics. How to master the focus group.
1: You can get a man to piss on a squidge of (laughs) McLean's.
0: And Alex Fox gets her teeth into some sexual myth-busting. But first, it's all the trends you need to know about for the week ahead. It's the zeitgeist with a man that spent last night sleeping on an inflatable mattress. It's Ollie Pierce.
2: If someone can invent an inflatable mattress that doesn't lose air, I would be most appreciative.
0: What have you got for us this week?
2: Turtlenecks. These are the things that uh, Noel Coward used to wear in the 1920s. Uh, <laughs> then... I think
0: we know what a turtleneck yeah, is, well, Ollie. You don't need to explain. Hey, listen.
2: Writer Hermione Hobie says that the turtleneck is an icon of thoughtful design.
0: Why is it? Because I've never seen a problem with just wearing a scarf.
2: The reason, she cites, is the simplicity and austerity of the turtleneck design. And she says that it is a garment which is for the wearer, not the viewer. And I think she's right. I mean, they're not particularly attractive to look at. And at this time of year, what you want, right, more than anything, is to be warm and comfortable. You can't argue with a turtleneck being warm and comfortable. These things are... Are amazing for that. No, I
0: find them itchy and claustrophobic.
2: You find them itchy because you buy ones probably that are like made of fabric that contains some itchy fibres. Just buy a comfortable one. What's wrong with you?
0: Name me the Ollie Pitt turtleneck of choice then.
2: The Kaha Anglistic Turtleneck Knit. Fisherman-esque beautiful thick knit like a sort of like an off-white cream type jumper uh, 68 quid from surf dome
0: you don't strike me as someone who's ever spent 68 pounds on a sweater I... you're like a charity shop jumper guy
2: here's what you do you take these and then you head down to tk maxx and you go and see if you can get them <laughs> what else have you got i've got the uh, 66 degrees north Buy lure, Fisherman's Roll Neck again the marine theme but fishermen's wear roll necks. This one is one hundred and seventy five pounds. However, fuck me, you are literally going to wear this jumper every day throughout winter. You can't put a price on that, Ollie. And I want to look <laughs> a little bit more sophisticated. I want to combine the sophistication of Milk Train Man with like uh, the, the practicality of a teacher's blazer. You know, like it's that it's it's just a brilliant utilitarian. This works, keeps me warm, and I look okay.
0: If I was to choose a word that instantly comes to mind when you say polo neck, I would actually say pretentious.
2: Well, it depends. He's wearing it, doesn't it? Like, I think this is the point. Right? You could be well, a. Model. I've never
0: seen Dizzy Rascal in a turtleneck.
2: And um, what I'm saying is, because yeah. I am the trend spotter, is that mm. he will be wearing one very soon. I guarantee you. We can authenticate this as a, as a legitimate trend the minute mm-hmm. that Dizzy Rascal wears a polo <laughs> neck. So if anybody sees him in one...
0: Okay, someone set up the Dizzy Rascal turtleneck countdown website, and uh, <laughs> when it hits zero, the trend has finally arrived.
2: It will happen. Uh,
0: what else have you got for us this week? Onion jewellery. Oh, well, this sounds like a much more legitimate thing.
2: Uh, it is, but it's not a fashion story, actually. So the price of onions in Iran has gone from 1500 to 4,500 tomans a kilo, right? So that's 39 cents a kilo to yeah, yeah. over a dollar a kilo. That's quite the jump. And uh, the reason that's happened is because... There's quite a few reasons, but one of the main ones is the sanctions that have been put on around recently by the United States. And as a result, Iranians have thought it to be quite funny to post pictures on social media of fancy jewellery uh, that's made out of onions. One guy's created a gold chain with a mm. massive onion feature. Actual onion. Like, it's not like he's made the onion out of gold or platinum or whatever. He's actually just got an onion and stuck it to a gold chain and put it in an amazing trinket box. There's the uh, onion medallion, which is, as you would expect, people wearing it with a hairy chest and open shirt
0: it's one thing to take a picture and put it on a blog and make a political point, and it's funny, but you're not actually saying they're literally wearing this out, are they, on the streets of Iran?
2: Some people might be. (laughs)
0: No, no, come on. But really, no, it's a social media story. It's a shame, I think, that there aren't really people walking around wearing onion jewellery because it means that still the only image that comes to mind is the comedy French stereotype of the man wearing a bunch of onions around his neck and riding a bicycle with a stripy shirt on. And why should the French monopolise it?
2: Oh, absolutely! actually, I'm just just on a on a stylistic point. The the whole baguette, blue and white striped jumper, onions around the neck thing. I actually mm. rate that style. Time
0: to move on to our weekly feature in which we challenge you, Ollie Piers, to be a true trends insider. Mm-hmm. Last week, listener Louise challenged you to live ethically for a week. Uh, how did it go?
2: All right, actually. So, Says who? Tim Hunt co-editor of uh, ethical consumer magazine i gave him uh, my receipts for the week and uh, how did it work out
0: what was the most ethical purchase that you made if you want to do some virtue signaling
2: so he was very pleased to see that i have lots of veg- vegetarian tendencies that's very ethical and also that i shop in. I wait- love
0: how vegetarianism has now just become vegetarian tendencies <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you are going back to carnivore aren't no, you no I i'm not I
2: definitely all right i am gonna i will say right here right now i will <laughs> not go back to eating meat apart from fish but one of those is that shopping in waitrose apparently very ethical because of the way that the company operates
0: so that's because they're part of the john lewis partnership which has this kind of happy clappy idea that the employees get a share of the company profits rather than shareholders right it costs much more to shop in Waitrose. So for listeners thinking, "Oh, great, I'd like to be ethical," the answer is I have to go to the most expensive supermarket.
2: Tim also says it's just about changing your habits gradually. But you can also think about where you get your uh, your fuel supply from. So I have my gas and electricity is uh, GB Energy. They're part of, like the mm-hmm. co-op, right? You know that do all the funerals and that kind of stuff. Uh, and they provide thirty three percent renewable energy for, to me. So whatever I buy, it's thirty three percent. I don't know if that includes the energy from burning corpses. And the uh, so is, it, is that. Good or bad? That's all right. Okay. Tim said, "Quote that scores quite well on our ranking system." But uh, I have sought to find another supplier because uh, I want to. I want to beat that. I want to do better. Uh, and I found a company called Bulb, who say that they can provide me with hundred percent renewable energy.
0: Has the activity of knowing that your outlays were to be audited actually changed your behaviour this week? Now you're not going to be handing in your receipts, are you going to go back to chuffing down whoppers every 10 minutes? No, not
2: at all. I think I am the kind of person that can preach at people a bit about stuff and say, come on, mate, use your car less. What are you, an idiot? Well,
0: you did use your car quite a bit during the week, didn't you? I mean, I, I've got the ethical audit in front of me. I mean, he does say, you know, you could have an electrical car, for example. Yeah, you don't.
2: Yeah. No. No. I, so I, that's I,
0: a bit hypocritical, isn't it?
2: Well, yeah. I, how could I move house without using a car?
0: He also says, looking at your terrible uh, alcohol consumption levels, um, <laughs> that you are consuming not just European wine. So you might want to think about that. He says. Yeah. You know, but, what's all this new world wine about, Ollie Pitt? That's got to come all the way from Australia.
2: What's ethical about that? It was. It was mate? A just an offer. Uh, in Waitrose, ethical supermarket.
0: And also I noticed that Tim did pick up on your choice of smartphone. I'm not going to berate you for that because you have an iPhone and I happen to know from data. So do most of our listeners. (laughs) But nonetheless, (laughs) what did he say about that?
2: Well, he said uh, with with mobile phones, you could get yourself a phone called the Fairphone. It promotes ethical mining for the raw materials that are needed to create the phone. It's Mm. also a modular phone. So you can buy different accessories throughout the years so your phone lasts longer so you could buy like expandable memory or a new camera and you can attach it to your phone so it's not like you're buying a brand new phone every time the problem is so like a a wired review of this phone described it as ugly expensive and out with out-of-date hardware but actually in the grand scheme of things it's not that expensive it's 420 quid but the new iphone is what a thousand pounds
0: yeah, and out of date in this context, I mean, OK, it might be using 2014 technology, but I mean, nowadays, 2014 technology is kind of good enough, isn't it? There's not huge leaps and bounds progress with each model.
2: No, exactly. Like, I've got an iPhone 6S at the moment, and I'm not replacing it at all because it's absolutely fine. I cannot be bothered to spend six £700 on a new phone. And he also says, actually, which did surprise me, that apparently Apple themselves score quite well when it comes to being ethical. I didn't Because they don't
0: let anyone into their factory. Well,
2: I thought (laughs) that Their
0: supply chain might seem ethical, but you can't see how they make the bloody things, can you? (laughs) Well, this is it. And if people have been inspired, Ollie, by your personal journey in the last week, as much as I've been put off by your unbearable ethical smugness, uh, how can they get their own ethical audit done?
2: Go to the website, ethicalconsumer.org, and you can uh, fill in your details there, and it will basically give you a report on how ethical you are.
0: So, Ollie, it's time for you to open the envelope and uh, see what the listeners have challenged you to investigate this week.
2: Oh, God. OK. Ollie Piat, your task this week comes courtesy of Sam, who says, I'd like Ollie to take what he's learned about cheese tea and salty coffee and invent a new drinks trend and test it on the public. (laughs) I actually
0: quite like this one. Thanks to your tea shop connections that you were talking about in uh, episode one of this season down in Pool, you might actually be able to try this out on the general public in your uncle's shop.
2: Oh my God, he's going to love me. Uh, I will literally put him out of business. This is going to be great. (laughs) This is like an apprentice task, isn't it? The thing is, I don't think there's anything you could come up
0: with that's any more or less bizarre than what is actually available on a mainstream basis in Starbucks these days. I mean, turmeric tea, coconut milk. Literally, just pick a herb and stick it in some tea or coffee and you've got a trend.
2: Ollie, you are so narrow-minded. I will blow your mind with what I create. You will be like, oh my God, he is actually a, a secret culinary genius. If you have a
0: challenge for Ollie Peart to investigate on his path to becoming a true trendsetter, then head to our website, modernmanwithtwoends.co.uk, uh, and click on the feedback form. Good luck, Ollie.
2: Cheers, Ollie. Hello,
3: man fans. My name is Tim C. Atherton. I am a chef and a restaurateur. Uh, one of my restaurants is called Trullo in Islington, and these are my top three Squarespace life hacks for how to make the perfect pasta. So, pasta doesn't need to be as time-consuming as you might think. My experience is that people at home won't make pasta because it's a bit of a faff. So, there's a couple of things there. One is uh, if you've got a magic mix, you can do everything in a magic mix, and it's very quick. And then another one is that you can batch prepare a lot of pasta and then it freezes quite well, either as dough or once you've rolled it into a shape, it also freezes. So you get ahead and make a load and then have it at your convenience. So my second tip, no pasta is solely about the pasta itself. People sometimes throw away the pasta water uh, when they put it into a colander and it all goes down the sink. That is like, the I think, any tip I give you, you must keep the pasta water. And the reason being is that pasta water is, is, you've seasoned it with a bit of salt to cook your pasta in, but also it turns quite starchy. And you use that pasta water to help bring your sauce together. You want to be able to have it in a pot next to your pasta and sauce, and then just ladle in small amounts at a time until you get the perfect sauce, because there's nothing more annoying than dry, stodgy pasta. So then once you've, you've kept hold of that pasta water, it's then really important to work it in the pan. That's called spadolare, and what that the Italian word for it. And essentially what it is, is it's working the, the starch in the pasta water. Say it's with bolognese, for example, there's fat inside the bolognese. So if you're working that gluten and, and the bolognese together, you want to work it in the pan quite vigorously uh, with some of that pasta water for about 20 seconds to uh, maybe 45 seconds, and you'll see that you'll get this unctuous, silky sauce happening. It's really important to work it in the pan together. So those are my three tips on how to make the perfect pasta. If you want to know any more about pasta, my new book is out. It's called Trullo the Cookbook and it's available in all the usual places.
2: Thanks to Tim for sharing his Squarespace life hacks. Artists, writers, bloggers are all using Squarespace to build their websites and you should too. Their templates are created by world-class designers and are simple to use. In fact, you can have a site up in under an hour. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code MAN, that's mawn to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain.
0: Now, who are you going to vote for in the next general election. That might seem a bizarre question, considering we've just had a general election, but the breakneck speed with which politics has been moving of late, no one really wants to predict whether it will actually be five years before the next one. And when the parties do try, once again, to attract your vote, they will be attempting to tap into the national conversation and thereby your brain. And they do that via focus groups james morris has been an advisor at the number 10 strategy unit under tony blair and he's advised international businesses like virgin media and starbucks on reputation management he's also run a hell of a lot of focus groups i started by asking him how do you put a focus group together
4: first of all you decide who you want to speak to if you're a political party you might want to speak to swing voters or you might want to speak to your core vote or if you're a green ngo you might want to speak to people who aren't sure if climate change is real or not whatever so you decide you want to speak to then you put together a sort of very short questionnaire might have five or six questions on that lets you identify people so are you male or female or how old are you You might give them like a five-point scale on how concerned they are about climate change from very concerned to not concerned at all. You phone up a company whose job it is to recruit people for focus groups to try and find the people you want. So women, 35 to 55, unsure whether climate change is real, not particularly concerned. That recruiter, and they tend to be semi-retired freelance people looking for a little bit of extra income will through a mixture of stopping people on the high street and who look roughly right and asking them the questionnaire to see if they fit the criteria or not or Mm -hmm. using lists they've built up because they've been doing this for years or networking through their friends go and find you nine people that meet the criteria those people agree to come because you pay them so they get roughly 40 quid for about 90 minutes is that
0: still the rate because I did it a bit when I was 16 and that was what I got then
4: yeah the cost of living crisis has meant that you don't (laughs) have to pay that much more depends slightly where you are (laughs) but yeah about that and then you pick a time and a place and you get them to come.
0: I mean, the fact that you're paying the participants at all, is that problematic?
4: Well, the reason you pay them is because for a lot of topics you might want to a focus group about, no one would ever want to come unless they were paid. Mm. And even more importantly, the kind of people who would come voluntarily are weird. Mm. Um, And you don't want weird people who are really interested if you want to speak to people who are unsure about climate change you don't want those people who would volunteer to come to a climate change focus group you want normal people who don't care about climate change won't give up 90 minutes of the evening to do it so you pay them um, so it's a way actually of juicing the bias in who comes because the people that come are coming for money not because they're particularly engaged or interested in the topic and if you do it often enough and you do it rigorously enough you're going to get pretty accurate sense of what people think in general about the topic amongst your target.
0: And actually, how many people do you need to have an aggregate view of that target? I mean, is eight enough or do you have to do ten sessions of eight?
4: Well, eight's definitely not enough but the point of focus groups is not so much to get a sense of whether most people think this or don't think that. To, To do that, if you want to get numbers, you want to do a poll. The point of a focus group is more to understand amongst a particular type of person... How do they think about something? If you've done multiple groups of eight people who've all broadly thought the same way with a few dissenters each time, that's probably the way opinion is formed and you can feel fairly confident using that. You could go quantify it afterwards, but you just end up spending more and more money and it's probably fine.
0: So what techniques do you use as a moderator in that situation? The
4: first thing you do, particularly if it's like a controversial topic, is make sure that the people in the room are likely to feel comfortable with each other uh, and that starts with the recruitment criteria so i'll give you an example just difference between men and women men talk way more they talk way more they try and dominate the conversation and you know there's a study that a couple of academics did counting how many times men and women referred to other people in the conversation like i'm not really sure but my family tends to do it like this whatever women about four or five times more likely to refer to someone else men were like I think this I think that <laughs> so on a lot of topics it's helpful to split men and women because they will feel more comfortable coming out and saying what they really think or education levels like if you have a really opinionated graduate and you have someone who is just as smart but they don't have that level of self-confidence in their ability to think about issues the graduate will just out-taught them mm-hmm. so you probably want to keep them Part. So it starts with actually who you've got in a room, and then you just directing questions at individuals. You don't let someone talk too much. If there's someone who's talking too much, you just turn your back slightly. You just shift around 15 degrees so that it's hard for them to get into the conversation. You do all sorts of stuff like that just to manage the dynamic in the room. You think a lot about the layout of a room. So a focus group, you you'll try and have a a U shape so that you can make eye contact with everyone. So the people sitting part taking part in it sat in a ring around you so you can make eye contact with everyone they can all make eye contact with each other but you're clearly at the head of it and you will try and dress one notch more formal than however you expect the participants to come because it's still the case that that does a little bit of a status job but you don't want to make them feel uncomfortable so if it's a bunch of like 17 year olds talking about careers you don't want to wear a suit but you probably do want to wear like quite a sharp pair of jeans rather than a tracksuit Bottoms, yeah. which they might be wearing, and the questions you ask really matter. So you ask open questions. Why do you think that? Rather than do you agree that X mm. gives you an opening into a much broader conversation.
0: And it is the twelve angry men thing, isn't it? You can very quickly get a consensus in a room of people that yeah. probably actually do have disparate views. So, if you're not what, so
4: what you do on the most important questions, what you actually do is try and get them, is get them to individually write down their answer at the beginning. Oh. So. Do you think Jeremy Corbyn is doing a good job or a bad job? Before we talk about it, everyone write down their answer. By getting people to write it down, it makes them... They then have to defend what they wrote down. And you as a moderator know, if I want to get the point of view of someone who thinks he's doing his job well, I'll go to that person.
0: Okay, and who are the troublemakers when you're in that room? I mean, you've mentioned someone who talks a lot. What are the other issues that people have?
4: So if you just imagine someone who's a complete pain who phones into talk radio... I don't need to imagine it.
0: I've had to take their calls.
4: (laughs) That's the person, right? Someone who thinks, someone someone who has a really convoluted, mad theory that they can't stop talking about. A
0: ready made worldview.
4: Ready made worldview. They just apply to everything. And that's fine. That's the way they think. But we're not going to have a very useful focus group if that person talks loads. Particularly if they're quite well informed. Because they're quite well informed, they can throw facts or things that appear like facts into the conversation that throw what other people think. So they're the real problems.
0: And when in the focus group do you disclose if at all who the client is? I
4: mean, Totally depends on the on the situation. So, I don't do these, but if you if you were doing focus groups looking at right, how to market a new Xbox game, it's going to be pretty obvious it's the new Call of Duty. Right? It's fine. It's not it's not like a secret. On the other hand, if you are looking at an issue it doesn't help if they know, you know, take that environmental example. If I'm working for Exxon or I'm working for Greenpeace, it's obvious like I'm going to come at it from a totally different point of view and want different answers. And if you as an individual want to send a message, um, you'll behave differently if my client is Exxon than if they're Greenpeace. So if you're doing, not that I've ever worked for Exxon, but um, when it's an issue, you try not to reveal the answer, who the client is. So not even at the end. At the very end, you might. I mean, at the very end, there's no problem in doing it. Uh, so if people ask, you might tell them.
0: And actually, in the case of Greenpeace, who are essentially a sort of pressure group, or even ExxonMobil, who, you know, their objective is very clear, they want to sell more fuel, it's clearer cut, I think. But when you work for a political party, when your client is actually the Labour Party, yep. or UKIP, or whoever it is, do you feel like you're helping those parties manipulate people with this data? That in a way, it's not fair. You're You're telling the people who run those parties how to get into someone's psyche who is almost unaware of the message that you're changing.
4: No, I think the opposite is the case, which is that the the way politics works is that most of the time the people politicians worry most about are their colleagues or the stakeholders in the area they're looking after, particularly if you're a minister or a shadow minister. So you need your colleagues to sort of back you, support you, not think you're like a a problem for their party. Uh, And that includes... Like factions within your own party. So on the Labour side, you need the unions to still be on side, and you need all these kind of different interest groups to support you. And then you'll then you'll get spend a lot of time. If you're regulating uh, the energy sector, you'll spend a lot of time with someone from British Gas, someone from Centrica, someone from well, the same company, someone from Empower. When you meet normal people, which British MPs do, it's in their surgery and it's in a totally different context. It won't be about energy regulation. It will be about their Universal Credit problems or whatever. Uh, and the other people you worry about are journalists, and journalists have political journalists have this incredibly insidery way of doing news that is all about who's up, who's down detail. So there actually aren't very many points where you hear what ordinary people who are supposed to be representing really think about what they want for their life, what they want for their country and what they want for your issue and what you're doing when you, when you run a focus group and even better if you can get a politician to sit in the back room and watch it is bringing that point of view to the people who are supposed to be acting and responding to it.
0: Uh, have you found that quite awkward sometimes if you've been behind the glass sitting with that politician?
4: Uh, yeah. Like Because people are very negative about politicians in general and when the conversation turns personal, so you know, what are the first three words that pop into your head when you think of Ed Miliband? <laughs> if he sat there in the glass next to you and the person says, weak. numpty brother weak... Yeah that's a difficult moment (laughs) but it's also pretty important that they know that so they can think about how to deal with it whatever way you know and they're obviously not just going to reflect back what the focus group says and say yeah I'm a a weak numpty. They're going to try and do something about it. So it's important they know it. I know you made um, that sound like good. a hypothetical
0: example, but you did work with Ed Miliband.
4: I you? did, and those did words were not unsaid.
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> and he seemed to deal with it quite well. I mean, as an outsider watching it, he seemed to understand quite well what the public opinion was of him. He just struggled to change it.
4: Well, yeah, I think so. I think he. Um, it was a really clear example of all of those insider forces in politics overwhelming public opinion. It was really sort of quite clear that the Labour Party could do better by like, changing its position on immigration to be a bit more concerned about it, by reassuring people that it wasn't going to spend loads of money for no reason. But it couldn't do that because it had all these interest groups inside the Labour Party that stopped it. So my experience is not that focus groups rule politics at all. It's the opposite.
0: So what happens to the data when you collate it together? It gets presented to your client and then what? Is it out of your hands from that point?
4: It totally depends on the role. So in politics, there is a history of focus group people and pollsters being also strategists. And sort of the start of it was Bill Clinton running for president in 1992. And you had the pollsters were also his strategists and developing what he did. And then the British Labour Party brought some of those things across. and There's a guy called Philip Gould, who was a strategist for Blair, also a focus group moderator. And so in politics, it is not so much you just do the research, hand it over, and they see what they do. In general, politicians treat their pollsters as advisors, and so you're part of constantly trying to fight that battle internally to persuade others that that is the right course of action. So if you take the energy price cap, very popular policy, like it didn't do everything we're supposed to do, but popular policy, but you have people coming at it from a relations with the city and business saying this is a really bad idea really screw up our relationship this way the other that you've got some pure policy people who are like that's the wrong sort of price cap this would be a better sort of price cap let's keep pontificating forever until the election comes we never do anything so you're playing a role internally of trying to make the case that forget all that crap (laughs) this is a good idea this is the way people feel about it This is the effect it has on our brand. This is how it's robust against attacks. This is why it will work out net positive. Can we go do it? Or, more common, someone somewhere, or lots of people in lots of places, have come up with lots of terrible ideas, and your job is to say, let's not do that. Let's not make our big idea moving Parliament to Sheffield. Fine, maybe loads of really good reasons to move Parliament to Sheffield, but it just makes us sound bizarre that we're focused on moving Parliament to Sheffield. Let's not put that in the speech. No, that person can't say that. No, don't even hint at it at a fringe event. That will be a big news story, and people think you sound mad. So you're doing both. You're like trying to push stuff that works well, and you're trying to block stuff that is going to cause you more problems than the benefits it creates.
0: And yet, you know, we see disasters in everyone's election campaign at some point. Even if yeah. they end up winning and it seems quite smooth, there's always a disaster. Yeah. Are those things sometimes predictable? And yet they've pressed ahead anyway.
4: Really often. So the example that really sticks out for me is in two thousand and was it when Gordon Brown took over two thousand six, two thousand
0: seven. I think because Blair had ten years, didn't he? So, two thousand seven. Yeah.
4: So it was it was clear that Blair was going to go and Brown's going to take over in the. Budget that year, there was the idea to raise the inheritance tax threshold, so couples could uh, pool it. So instead, of, so which basically doubled it, basically moved it up to about seven hundred grand or something like that, six hundred. I can't remember, but do- basically doubled the inheritance tax threshold, and it tested amazingly well, brilliantly well, because people feel like wealth they've earned through their life is what they should be able to pass on to their kids. And it didn't matter that most people weren't paying inheritance tax anyway. They still felt there was like a sort of moral right to pass stuff on to kids. And so there was no personal benefit to most people. They didn't care. They just thought it was the right thing to do. Yeah. An idea that tested really badly was introducing a new Tempe rate of income tax. <laughs> because no one understood that it had been scrapped. They didn't understand any of the backstory and any fiddling around with tax rates. People think it's a tax rise. Yeah. so They just don't trust you to not make it a tax rise. And so we, we found this out in these focus groups. I was with a colleague I was working with at the time, a woman called Deborah Mattinson. We sat to watch the budget. And early in the speech, Gordon Brown said, people have made representations to me that we should pull inheritance tax thresholds. This would be unfair on widows. I was like, oh, hang on. He's not going to do it. We thought he was going to do it. He's not going to do it. And instead, he introduced a new 10p tax ban, which was basically did raise taxes on loads of people. He cut the basic rate of income tax but introduced a new lower rate which actually was a tax right to lots of people so he did exactly the wrong thing from a political point of view it caused a big wobble he survived he became PM getting forward to nearly having an election the thing that kills him having the, the, the election the election, is he, that out the election he banks out of is in George Osborne's speech at the Tory party conference he announces exactly the same inheritance tax move <laughs> that Brown had rejected in the budget in the spring yeah. and that stops the election and basically screws Brown's premiership so, yes, really often there are political mistakes people make that are totally predictable. In that case, the reason they didn't do it was they just thought it was wrong. Like, they genuinely thought that raising the inheritance tax threshold, which delivered a benefit to the wealthy, nothing for the poor, was a really bad idea, which is very reasonable. Like That's totally principled and it, exactly what politicians should do with focus group information if they think that. But I did leave this open goal that Brown decided not to kick the ball through and just left for Osborne, who did it at exactly the right time with massive long-term implications.
0: There's a contradiction at the heart of all this, it seems to me, which is, uh, on the one hand, obviously, focus group information can be really powerful, and so you'd be unwise to ignore it. But on the other hand, if you asked focus groups what do they value in politicians these days, they'll tell you, the ones who seem honest and real and aren't being spun.
4: Yeah, uh, That's not a contradiction at all. That's about deciding what to listen to. I can sit down with someone and they'll tell me I really want someone who's honest says what they believe strong stands by their convictions even if they're unpopular yeah. and then I can ask them what do you think about this specifically happened actually should we have a referendum on uh, leaving the EU was a question in advance of the last election like the Tories were in favour of it Labour didn't really have a position and we did some focus groups where they said they want strength blah 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 and then we tested we, we had these little videos of um, Ed Miliband rehearsing for speeches and things like that. And we, there was a clip where he ruled out having a referendum on the EU. And we tested it in advance of him saying it. And most of the people in the room disagreed. They wanted the referendum. But it was still the second most positive clip that we tested. Mm. Because what they said about wanting strength, conviction, honesty was more important than their views about the referendum. They wanted a referendum, but they didn't really care.
0: Well, I suppose what I'm saying is... But if you ask people who's the most spun politician of the last 20 years, I reckon they'd all say Blair. Yeah. Right? And actually, Blair was the most popular in terms of winning elections, but people now say that it was a flaw in him that he seemed to operate by focus group. And actually, when Brown and May had their honeymoon periods, what people said was good about them was they seemed unspun. They weren't listening to focus groups. The reason people like Nigel Farage was for that reason. So how do you marry those things together? You're saying they should take the right advice, but... If they look like they're taking too much focus yeah. group advice, Fine. people don't like them.
4: So so look unspun. Like, leave your hair disheveled. <laughs> don't do your tie-up. Yeah. Like, I mean, or, or That's alternatively... That's a strategy, yeah, isn't it? But more, a more serious version of that is say what you believe, stand up for it and fight for it. But also, if you're in a totally different position to the general public, you're not likely to win. So the the best position to be in is someone who authentically, genuinely thinks things that are broadly in line with where key voters want them to go. And that's not a problem. Like, that's that's sort of the kind of leader you want. And Blair had it. Blair was pretty instinctively in the same place as a lot of the voters he wanted early on. Later on, he, much less so, Once it, he, he seemed to lose a sense of what an average income was and <laughs> became captured by people who are much better off than the average person. Yeah. But early on, he was just quite instinctively in line where people are so he was both authentic and in line.
0: What's the most unexpected reaction you had to a message in a focus group?
4: So it's actually one of the like most shocking and difficult experiences extraordinary experiences so doing these um, focus groups with a group of Asians from the, it was a mixture of first generation, second generation Asian former migrants from India and Pakistan and um, we were talking about immigration you know there was a lot this was, I don't know, seven years ago or something but it still it was a big issue at the time and um, we were talking about benefits and things like that might change and this bloke said when I came to this country we got nothing no help at all and my child died and we couldn't afford a proper funeral and we got no help and I expected him to say and so you know and I don't want anyone to go through that ever again Yeah. but he didn't he said and if I could get through that, they can get through anything. Yeah. And it, 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 they shouldn't have any more help than I did because it because that is the deal. Yeah. And it's like that is totally the, totally the opposite of what I expected or the way I would personally. Who knows? I've not been in that situation, but like the the what seems to me the consequence of his experience. But you can't. That is what he thinks, and it is when you get those kinds of. Disjunctions in the way people think that just they come from the same starting point and come to a totally different conclusion. That's really interesting.
0: How do you know that what people are saying in the room is what they think is really what they think? If you were talking
4: about, say, attitudes to abortion, you probably wouldn't do a focus group. you do like a one-on-one interview with someone because you get rid of that whole group dynamic, and it's much easier to tell personal stories and all, all those sorts of things. So you can change the format. Mm. But the other thing, the the bigger answer to your question, is that I don't think people are necessarily experts on what they think or what they really want. Or at least it changes in more often than we like to admit to ourselves. I think I want something now, but in two years' time, I might regret that I wanted it. Did I really want it? You know, it's a question. So there's a Henry Ford quote, which is, you know, if I'd asked people what they wanted, they'd have said a faster horse. Yeah. And it really depends on how you interpret a faster horse. If you think people literally want a faster horse, then they don't really know what they want. Well, they actually want it as a car, but they hadn't thought of a car, so they didn't really say it. If you think a car is a faster horse, it just doesn't have legs, then they did know what they want. So it's quite subtle to understand what it is that is a real desire and whether people are experts on their own motivation or not.
0: But what about that issue of just presenting yourself to strangers in a different way to how you would perhaps honestly think? I mean, take it away from politics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Am I more likely to say in a group of people who are my peers, they're all graduates, am I more likely to say, yes, I buy organic cucumbers, but then when I go to the supermarket, I'll buy the cheap ones?
4: Yeah, you are. So that's why you don't just use a single data source. So on something like that, if you want to know how likely is it that people buy organic cucumbers, it is much better probably to do a poll. And if you wanted to know what are the attributes of a cucumber that make someone more likely to buy it, um, you are probably better off uh, doing a like having a mocked up shop, putting different types of cucumbers in it, and seeing which ones people walk to. Mm. So there are lots of different research techniques that allow you to get around the problem that people aren't able to express what they want in words necessarily that well and get biased by a weird kind of situation. It's definitely not the case that whatever your question is, a focus group is a way to find it out. There are other things you could do, and it, it, when it is a behavioural thing, like which cucumber will I pick up, that's much easier than if it is like, what is your attitude to road pricing? People don't really have a view; like they can say, I don't like it. Well, they're saying is, I don't like paying for stuff if I don't have to. Yeah, but
0: they're not saying if I was in power, I would ban it.
4: Yeah, exactly. And then if that is the only way to build an additional lane on a road they're always stuck on, or Then they might have a different view. So it's much harder in the context of policy and issues than it is in the consumer world, where you need just particularly around products, it's much easier.
0: If you ran a political party, how much, as a proportion of your budget, would you spend on focus groups?
4: So in Australia, they spend something like twenty percent of their budget on research. It's like a ludicrous amount of money. In the UK, they spend less than five percent. So if I started a political party, the leader would be someone who was intuitively in line with where the public is and therefore didn't need that much research and would actually be able to deliver on what the public want, which is authenticity. And so that comes to this question of choosing what to listen to. So if you take take the debate about nationalising railways, mm. so I can't remember the exact number, but like 60% of people think we should nationalise tra- railways, right? But only 4% of people think transport is one of the top issues facing the country. So probably only 1% of people care about trains so do I listen to that 60% number who say we should nationalise them or the 1% number who say it doesn't really matter and it's those kinds of decisions that are really important and in my view you know, it's the 1% that matters you're never going to win or lose anything based on your train policy train policy is not very important have whatever train policy you want like you believe in it's fine it doesn't matter <laughs> um, if, you're, if you're using these things well you're listening to lots of different sources of information and you're making critical judgments about what is important rather than just treating it like a weather vane where you're just blown this way or that.
0: Okay, so if it is about the big issues then and what the public think about the big issues that matter to them, I mean, what do you think the three big issues are coming up to any election?
4: Cost of living, identity and immigration as a sort of cipher for identity, and then strength. Strength. Strength, like as in, are they able to do what they say they're going to do? So their personal strength as a leader, you mean? Personal strength as a leader, which also links to sort of authenticity. Like, so for me to think that you're strong, I need to think that you're saying what you really mean and that you've got enough of a backbone to stand up and try and do it, even in the context of headwinds that are trying to block you. So it's a, it's a mixture of authenticity and will. And it is it, people are looking for leaders who are willing to stand up for something and one of the problems we've got is that what that thing is doesn't seem to matter as much as it used to (laughs) but they need to feel like they're going to be better off, they need to feel like their kind of identity
0: is respected and they need to feel like you've got what it takes to do it James Morris there, Senior Director at Edelman Alex Fox is up next after this I want to fox you up. Yes, it's time for the foxhole with Alex Fox. Hello.
1: Hello, beautiful Ollie. How are you doing?
0: I'm all right, thank you. Yes, what have you been up to this week?
1: I have been doing some myth-busting. Oh, wow. About thrusting.
0: <laughs> what have you discovered?
1: Well, there was a story going around uh, on the internet, and actually in some newspapers as well, that toothpaste could be used as a pregnancy test. What? Needless to say, this is a massive load of dangly bollocks.
0: What was the idea? that you brush your funny with McLeans and it tells you whether you're <laughs> pregnant?
1: <laughs> uh, no, the idea was that if you don't have a pregnancy test which you can get for free from your GP or you can buy them in pound stores the idea was that if you don't have a pregnancy test for whatever reason and that you're concerned that you might be pregnant you can put a blob of toothpaste in a little cup, wee on it and if it goes frothy and develops a blue tinge, then that indicates that you're pregnant. And these stories said that that was because the toothpaste was reacting with HCG, or Human Chorionic Gonadotropic Hormone, uh, which is produced uh, by the body when uh, an egg attaches to the wall of the womb. Yeah. Uh, and that this frothiness and blue tinge indicated the presence of that hormone and thus the early stages of a pregnancy.
0: And I'm guessing there's probably a kernel of truth in that it's just not reliable right it wouldn't have surface as a rumor, if it was complete bollocks would it
1: there is no scientific evidence that says whether hcg does or does not react with certain ingredients in toothpaste you can get a man to piss <laughs> on a squidge of mclean's yeah. and if his, if his urine contains enough uric acid it will froth then
0: okay well thank you for that uh, myth busting um, it is time for our listener question of the week sponsored by our friends at mycondom.com alex remind us of their excellent range of products
1: well, lots of the condoms they stock are fair trade. They have the fair trade mark on them. Uh, This means that the workers uh, in places like Malaysia, where uh, rubber latex is made, receive a fair working wage. So you can be confident that while you're getting laid, you're not actually kicking somebody in the nuts halfway across the world.
0: The question is from Joe, who says, I'm a single gay man in my early 30s, and I've only ever had one serious boyfriend, which was over a decade ago. Since then, I've been hooking up with the occasional random guy on CD sex websites, and I feel it's time for that to end. I'd like to find Mr. Right and stop dicking around. I'm just not sure how to go about it. I am what I would call... A straight gay. Um, I don't come across to others as being gay unless I outright tell them. I also live in a small village in the middle of nowhere, there's no gay community in or around where I live, and a lot of the apps and websites out there for gay men like me focus on casual sex, and I want more than that. So Alex, are websites like OkCupid or Match.com good places for gay men to find the one, or are there other better places geared towards this?
1: Now before we get onto that, I just want to deal with this idea of him describing himself as a straight gay. Mm. Now what I think he means there is he's not flamboyant, he's not camp, he's not got uh, the kind of personality and look that is uh, maybe stereotypically associated with being gay. Uh, And I believe that he may be pointing this out because what he's saying is it's not immediately obvious that I am a friend of Dorothy. Mm. Uh, Therefore, perhaps uh, if there was anybody else who was gay in my area, they might not know that I'm gay. And so, you know, that isn't a community that I've entered into. There is nothing wrong with being camp. There's nothing wrong with being flamboyant if that's an identity that comes naturally to you and something that you feel comfortable with. However, this idea that if you are gay, that is how you have to be and that you're not a proper gay or that you're not 100% gay or that your your queerness is somehow undermined if you're not flamboyant, that is an issue. Um, Have you heard of the term straight acting, which Mm. is a way that a lot of people on gay dating sites actually describe themselves? I think some of them, by that, what they mean is that they're not they're not camp they're not flamboyant sparkling unicorn rainbow types
0: well to to pick a famous example this would be more like the labour mp chris smith less like graham norton
1: potentially yes yeah Yeah. um however the 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 difficulties in this come when lots of people say that that uh description suggests internalized homophobia you're saying i'm gay but i'm not gay like that Mm. uh i'm i'm gay like a straight person i'm there's a Perhaps a sense of shame there. Uh, Others, however, argue that it's um, just a rather clumsy way of saying, uh, I'm not flamboyant. Mm.
0: It is an issue as well, isn't it, that, as Joe says here, you know, the most obvious gay dating websites, the ones people have heard of, are the ones that are geared towards casual sex, not romance.
1: Yeah, really well-known apps like Grindr, yes, they do focus on hookups. But the good news is there's a whole raft of new or revamped queer dating sites that don't concentrate just on that. Gaydar, at the website, has just had a revamp, actually. From now on, uh, they are focusing more on being a social community where they say that people can focus on making friends and finding meaningful relationships. So it might be worth checking those out. Um, also, do you know Ollie Locke from Made in Chelsea?
0: I do. How do I even know who that is? I think he was on Celebrity Big Brother one year.
1: Yeah, he's a reality TV star who is also happens to be gay. Um, he and a friend have established a, a new dating uh, app, which is called Chappy. And it's, it's, sort of, it's got a swiping format, a little bit like Tinder. Um, but you can also choose whether you're looking for a Mr. Right or a Mr. Right Now. So it caters to hookups or sort of more deep, meaningful relationships.
0: Okay. And to Not Joe's. That
1: hookups can't be meaningful.
0: And to Joe's specific question then OKCupid, Match.com, is it worth, as a gay man, going on those sites that tend to be marketed? at straight men and straight women I mean they have options obviously for gay and bisexual people but you know they are marketed in a heteronormative way
1: I would argue that OkCupid really is marketed at everybody. I speak to so many people who are in polyamorous relationships so consensual non-monogamy people who are queer, loads of folks use OkCupid. I think the important thing here and I was chatting about this with, um, there's a woman called Charlie Lester who's the founder of the Dating Awards where every year she and her panel of judges look at all the apps and websites out there and say who's doing it well, who's pushing the envelope, who's who's advancing things forward and making road easier to find and I think it's something like one in three young people these days actually do find a partner through an app yeah and she told me two things she said firstly if an app or a site invites you to put quite a lot of work into your profile uh, maybe answering questions about what you want mm. who you're looking for uh, presenting quite a lot of information about yourself that requires a commitment of time people who put that time in are more likely to be looking for a committed relationship yeah I mean
0: if you're sitting there and you're horny and you're looking to get off you're not going to spend an hour answering what your favourite Tarantino film is no no yeah. so
1: if uh, if Joe veers towards those websites where uh, he is required to put in the effort he's likely more likely to find somebody who will put in the effort back Also, those which require you to pay. Lots of people aren't happy to shell out for just one night of of source. They're more likely to invest their money if they're looking for something uh, that they consider to be of more value. I spoke to a couple of mates as well who are part of a London-based group called London Gamers, uh, who are gay people who are interested in video games. Uh, Really great group, actually. Loads of fun. And a big number of them said, Joe... This might be hard to hear, but if you're finding it difficult being the only gay in the village, consider getting out of the village. Uh, And a lot of gay friends said this. They said it it just universally is, unfortunately, really hard if you're uh, someone who's queer in a small area... Mm. It can be very difficult to meet other people who are queer and to meet other people who you fancy, you know, or who you get along with. Mm. Just because somebody identifies as having the same sexual persuasion as you doesn't necessarily mean that you're yeah. going to get on with Yeah, it. it's a
0: bit like when your parents used to say, like, you know, oh, there's this other guy who's just moved to the town. He's the same age as you and he likes films. You'll yeah. get on. It's like, well, probably not.
1: Now, I'm painfully aware that that is a really big thing for me to ask him to do, and it might not be financially or emotionally viable right now. He might not be able to move. Uh, But I also spoke to people who are in smaller places, uh, and a couple of them recommended uh, there's a group called Outdoor Lads, uh, which meet in more rural areas. Um, You might still have to travel, but perhaps not as far. And they do things like hiking and walking, and and it's it's not a dating thing. It's more of a social thing to find... uh, like-minded friends and, uh, and a community of people who you can feel relaxed talking about sexual identity with but through them you might well meet uh, folks that you fancy.
0: Good I'm glad to hear that that's a serious-minded group because it does sound like a dogging group.
1: <laughs> no it isn't no it's, it's genuinely about hiking and Companionship. biking. Companionship yes yeah. okay yeah.
0: great stuff. Uh, if you have a question of sex for Alex for next week's episode where should you head?
1: Go to our website which is man, with 2 ends, and click feedback.
0: And if you want to buy yourself some prophylactics for this week ahead, particularly important if you are indulging in casual sex through an app, remember to head to mycondom.com.
1: And use the code FOXHOLE, F-O-X-H-O-L-E, to get 15% off.
0: And with that, this week's show is very nearly at an end, but there is just time to anoint a new ambassador. It's Greg in Abu Dhabi who says, "Ollie, I love your show. I've listened from the beginning and I've just got round to buying you a few pints. Thank you, Greg. modernman.co.uk slash beer. Uh, Greg says, I tell every expat I meet about your fab podcast. I can't promote it to the locals here. Sadly, the foxhole would blow their minds. Uh, but I now pronounce you man ambassador to Abu Dhabi. Congratulations. Our theme is by Django Django. Go see them on tour now. And our record of the week isn't from this week at all. Uh, it's from 25 years ago, but it is from my all-time favourite album. Uh, it's a previously unreleased demo from Automatic for the People. It's called Mike's Pop Song. This is R.E.M. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer's Matt Hill. We'll see you next Tuesday. So retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History?
1: Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance.
0: On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine.
1: On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers.
0: And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. 10 minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.